I'm Jeanette Beebe, class of 2014. For this episode of Paw Tracks, we spoke with Jerry Sorrell, class of 1950, who has been passionate about music for most of his life. Now 90, he is both an accomplished violinist and a retired chemical engineer. He lives in North Caldwell, New Jersey, with his wife, Susie, of nearly 65 years. In April, he celebrated his birthday with a concert he called Still Fiddling at 90. In a full room of family members and friends, he performed a set of classical pieces and folk tunes. His daughter, Dr. Samara Sorrell, class of 81, joined him on piano. Here's Sorrell playing the theme from Schindler's List, dedicated to the memory of his grandmothers, who each died at Auschwitz. Sorrell was the concertmaster of the Princeton University Orchestra, but over time, he's realized he prefers to make music in smaller rooms. He says the performance is more intimate that way. You are in charge of shaping the music, the, uh, the expressions, the, uh, you know, the uh, way of the soft and the loud and tempo speeding up, slowing down. Whereas if you play in an orchestra, the conductor basically is the uh, field marshal. I mean, he's a, he's a real dictator. You've got to follow exactly his tempo, and, and you, you've often seen like that, you know, soft, soft, so, or he goes like that, you know, let's speed it up and down. So in chamber music, it's, it's the musicians themselves. Usually, the first violin again is the leader, but, but by and large, it's a, it's a community affair. You know, everybody listens to each other, and, and if the cellos have some good ideas, Obviously, we incorporate them, you know, it's not, it's not a dictatorship. It's a, it's a much more demanding and intimate way of making music than to play just in a large ensemble, you know. Jerry, or Gerhard, picked up the violin at age nine. He was inspired by his father, who played the instrument nearly nonstop. In Vienna, where Jerry was born and grew up, music was as essential as air. It was part of his home, his family, his culture. Well, it's my birth, uh, my birth father, the one that taught me violin, died when I was about uh, uh, 10 or 11 years old of, of TB, which was a deadly disease at that time. And uh, my mother sort of had to support me and her parents and all that. So it was a very, very stressful time. And, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say that, that I, I had a terrible childhood, but it was a little bit stressful. Uh, I, I, said I hardly ever met my father after he had the TV because at that time it was worried that because of its contagion, so he was in sanitariums and stuff like that, you know. And my mother really had to work very hard from the day she was 14 years old to support a whole family. So it, it, was, uh, it was a little bit uh, stressful. It was not uh, a comfortable thing, you know. But on the other hand, there was uh, a, a, always love in the family, which is more important than material goods and, and money, you know. Still, after his father passed away from TB, little Gerhard persevered. He kept up his love for music. He kept practicing. Eventually, he was accepted into the Vienna Conservatory, a prestigious institution to study music, especially as a child. He lived in Vienna until age 12. Then, in 1938, Germany invaded, and his family was forced to flee the country to Luxembourg. I started out to be a professional musician in Vienna back in the, th in the, in the th 30s, 
But when Hitler came we, as, as being uh, Jewish, we, we fled and then literally uh, were on our way to the United States, but it took almost two years because we couldn't get the visa affidavit, as they called it at the time. And uh, so I sort of lost, uh, you know, the momentum uh, to continue, uh, you know, as, as, as a professional musician. His family moved to London first. Then they made the trip across the Atlantic. They landed in New York City on Thanksgiving Day, 1939. And I made the decision, really, after we finally got to the United States, that uh, I'll keep music as an avocation and chose. I've always liked uh, uh, chemistry and math and all that, so uh, I decided chemical engineering would be a way to earn a living, and music was a, uh, a, a, you know, something really enjoyed and kept up with. He continued to practice violin in New York. As a teenager, he was interviewed in the New York Times about one of his original compositions. Then, at 19, he was drafted to serve in World War II. I've spent uh, close to two years in the Army, in, in the U.S. Infantry. Believe it or not, I was in a machine gun and water outfit, heavy weapons. Even though uh, I had told them I speak perfect German, couldn't you use me in something where I could use those skills? No, no, no. Off I went to basic training. But after, after the war stopped, after VE Day, they finally realized I had something to offer by fluency in German and assigned me to the counterintelligence corps, which was sort of similar to the CIA that the Army ran, and uh, to interrogate German prisoners of war and also some Nazi officials. So, so uh, that was a great deal of satisfaction to be able to do that, you know. When he was serving overseas, Jerry wrote letter after letter after letter back home. Over 400 arrived in his family's mailbox in New York, and they saved every one. I was sort of apprehensive as I wrote to my parents. So see, they saved all my letters and happened to reread one of them. And the fact, uh, very similar to what's happening now to some extent, how I'm, after all this experience, you know, being in the infantry, machine gun, getting, getting shell, almost shell-shocked to some extent, how am I going to catch up to the people that didn't have to do it? How am I going to fit in, you know? But uh, uh, fortunately, it, wasn't, it didn't prove to be all that difficult, you know. As I said, my concern was larger than the reality, you know. I did, I did I managed okay. Once he returned to the States after the war, he enrolled at Princeton. He majored in chemical engineering. He remembers his time on campus very well. He forged his own path. Quite honestly, I didn't have much money. In fact, I didn't have any money. So, so I, uh, the uh, joining clubs and all that really, you know, I had no, really no interest. Besides, my uh, fiancé, whom you met, uh, lived in New York. So uh, I, didn't, I spent most of the weekends going back. So I really wasn't tied in with a normal college experience, you know. Of course, I did, did go to lectures and, and had fun and all that, and there were parties and so on, but by and large, that was so secondary, you know. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Princeton and also earned a master's degree. Then he took a job as a materials engineer. He worked at Kellogg and then at ESSO Research and Engineering, which later became Exxon. At ESSO, he led a team developing new synthetic fuels. 
So, and all, especially when it came to these synthetic fuels, it was all developing new technology. So there is definitely some uh, creative element, although it's different, of course, than something like in the arts. But it's not, it's not drudge work and calculation and stuff like that. There's it's a lot of creative input. There's a dichotomy. Usually people in the arts, in some of the cultural aspects, somehow look down on number crunchers, you know, the engineers and technicians and all that. I mean, that's worldwide and it's been forever and ever, you know. That's the way it is, you know. The, uh, some of them feel a little bit more exalted than, than uh, engineers and chemists. And, uh, again, perhaps I overstated this thing, but there is a, a, a slight tension between the arts and the sciences. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I, I think that obviously there's room for both. His responsibilities grew. In 1980, he contributed to the National Materials Advisory Board's official report for the world's estimated international energy needs. Looking back, he says he remembers loving Princeton because he could be both a scientist and a musician. Well, it's interesting how many scientists are also interested in, in music. Perfect example, Einstein. He loved the violin. He was a miserable violinist, <laughs> so, so I'm told. But he liked to play quartets. Incredibly, as an undergraduate, he met Einstein briefly. More than 65 years after graduation, Sorel fondly remembers his college years. Even though I was rather pressed and all that, and it was tough, I very much enjoyed Princeton. You know, I uh, we still have connections with it. And my daughter is actually uh, president of the. Uh, of uh, the alumni association in some of those counties where we live, you know. And we have these picnics and, and holiday uh, get-togethers and all that. And, of course, I'm, I'm always there as the uh, eminence grease, the old guy, you know. Hey, you're still walking upright. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, so, and, 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 have some fr- and actually one of my best friends of, of through all these years is my... Uh, roommate in Princeton that I uh, was with. The connection is still there, so there is definitely... Princeton wasn't just a a trade school for me, it was a a far broader experience, you know. It's a terrific place, that's, that's for sure. Our thanks to Jerry Sorrell for sharing his story. Jeanette Beebe produced this episode the music is courtesy of Jerry Sorrell.